From the small towns to the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Today, we bring you the story of Iowa's long-lost NBA team who beat the Boston Celtics, and that team, the Waterloo Hawks. We'll also bring you the story of a woman whose family lives in the New York City Public Library. And finally, we have the story of the woman the Gestapo once considered the most dangerous of all Allied spies. Let's begin with Tim Harwood and the story of the Waterloo Hawks. During the era just after World War II, Waterloo had around 70,000 people, give or take. Waterloo is an industrial city. It's in the middle of the farm belt, but it was the first place where John Deere tractors were ever built. So a big manufacturing base that might have been more reminiscent of a Rust Belt city in Ohio or Indiana or Michigan. But this story isn't about John Deere tractors. It's about basketball. Waterloo Hawks basketball. The Hawks of the late 1940s and into the first years of the 1950s were unique because they were, of course, the only major league level team that Iowa has ever had going beyond Waterloo. It's uh, a unique circumstance for the entire state and Waterloo was in the right place at the right time. But to understand why Waterloo ever had a professional basketball team, we have to go back. Back to the Great Depression. During the Depression era, the best professional basketball players in the United States played for barnstorming teams. Uh, They'd travel around the country, they wouldn't have a set schedule, they'd pick up games as they could find them. And for the real stars of the era, they could make a, a very good living In fact, a better living doing that than they could trying to play for one team that might play two or three games a week. By the latter years of the Depression into the mid to late 1930s, there was a a major league that formed. It was called the National Basketball League eventually. And the name is something of a misnomer if you think of sports that are in the National Basketball Association or the National Football League or the big major leagues that we have today because the game took root in places like Fort Wayne, Indiana and Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And there were a variety of reasons for that. They had industrial bases. Many of the teams of that era were owned by companies. And so the players who took those opportunities not only in many cases uh, played basketball, but also worked for the company that might have owned the team or for another large business in the community. The National Basketball League was the preeminent league, though, through World War II. Coming out of the war years, the owners of major arenas in the East primarily, Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, even Chicago Stadium, more toward the Midwest, and others got together and looked at basketball at the pro level 
as something that could fill their buildings. They, in many cases, had success with college basketball games, particularly at Madison Square Garden during the 1930s and 40s, and thought that they could fill 25 to 30 or maybe more dates in their buildings that otherwise might be idle with professional basketball. They formed their own league, the Basketball Association of America, and for a few years post-World War II, the National Basketball League, the Basketball Association of America competed against each other. And the level of competition rose. It, it became challenging to try to get prestige. It became challenging to try to attract top players. There were bidding wars for players in some cases, and that got expensive because there wasn't nearly the money in professional basketball in the 1940s that there is today. It was a matter of determining who would control the future of professional basketball. They came up with a variety of ways to try to approach that situation, but in the off-season between the 1947-48 schedule and the 48-49 season, the Basketball Association of America hijacked four of the NBL's teams in their entirety. They talked the owners of the Minneapolis Lakers and the Fort Wayne Pistons and teams in Rochester, New York and Indianapolis, Indiana into jumping from one league to the other. So the National Basketball League in the summer of 1948 needed teams. They needed to fill out their roster of cities that would be able to make them a viable league. And they were able to add a few different clubs, including a team in Waterloo. The Hawks came into being because they had all the right elements in place. They had a Hippodrome building on the National Cattle Congress fairgrounds that could seat seven to 8,000 people. They had a basketball floor that was in place that was brand new. And they had a reputation already for supporting sports teams. They also were in a very fortunate circumstance because a local who had moved on and become a wrestling promoter primarily in Des Moines had come into possession of the team's roster that had played in Toledo, the, the franchise uh, rights had gone to a former boxer and, and boxing promoter, wrestling promoter named Pinky George. Pinky had been a, a fighter in the 1920s and uh, ultimately had managed to make a career as a promoter through the Great Depression. He actually managed a couple of boxers who would fight Joe Lewis during their careers uh, as they made their way up to the top of the, the boxing world and uh, have a chance at the legendary champion of the era. He had originally intended to bring professional basketball to Des Moines but the details just didn't come together. There wasn't the kind of support that he was hoping to have. It was challenging to find a venue to put the team in. And so because he was familiar with Waterloo, after having grown up uh, right next door in Cedar Falls, he decided that he'd put the Hawks in the Hippodrome. And uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for that immediately from uh, Waterloo fans who always, uh, I think, felt like the city had a lot to offer. They felt like they had uh, big shoulders for a small city, I think would be a fair way to describe it. And so when they had this opportunity, they jumped at it. But the situation was still untenable between the two leagues. The Basketball Association of America hadn't extinguished the NBL. 
the National Basketball League was still hanging on. And with bidding wars for players, with the, the efforts that both entities were having to put forth to try to claim that they were the preeminent league, it finally became inevitable. And you can tell from the acronyms that the two leagues used, the NBL and the BAA would come together, they'd merge and become the NBA. They lost several teams in the process, but Waterloo was determined, the community and its uh, leaders were determined that they were going to keep a team in the city and have a chance to play against opponents from New York and Boston and Philadelphia and all of the places that you really do think of as major league destinations then and now. Waterloo had its place as they saw it, as the people of the time saw it, in Major League Basketball. You know, they had players who were all Americans. They had visiting teams coming in that had stars that people knew from their years in college and who had gone on into professional basketball. They had players from the World War II era who had served during the war prior to returning to college and then ultimately becoming professional basketball players. Arguably the biggest star for the Hawks initially was a player named Harry Boykoff. At one point, he actually held the scoring record for Madison Square Garden as a college player. A big guy, a, a lanky center, and uh, not particularly fleet of foot, but had a, a tremendous personality at the same time. Actually had uh, played for a season in Toledo before he came to Waterloo. He chose the NBL because the team in Toledo offered to get him a job that would uh, keep him busy. He was a, an accounting major at St. John's and so wanted to put his business skills to use. Took a, an offer to go play in Toledo because they could promise him a job during the offseason that uh, would supplement his basketball income. Another All-American player uh, was from the University of Tennessee's named Dick Meehan and he was the biggest scoring star for the Waterloo Hawks during their season in 1948-49 when they were in the National Basketball League. He was among the top scorers in the league that season. Meehan actually was, uh, I believe, in the Air Force. At that point, it would have been the Army Air Corps during World War II. It was quite a bit different in that era. Today we think of athletes regardless of their sport training year-round and it's a full-time job to be an athlete in that era, the 1940s and into the 1950s. Players would arrive at the start of the season and uh, they'd have a couple of weeks and that would be when they would be getting in shape. And uh, during the off season, there wasn't a tremendous amount of training. There weren't a lot of rules regarding what players could do with their time. There were some players actually in the era, and you don't see this at the NBA level today that I can think of in any sense, where there were players that in some cases would play professional sports. They might be baseball players in the summertime, play basketball in the winter. So when they would arrive in the fall, they would uh, train for a few weeks. They'd play a few preseason games uh, strung together and uh, dive right into the schedule after that. It's interesting that a lot of players had off-season jobs. Typical average player's contract as a professional basketball athlete in the 40s and 50s might have been in the range of $4,500 a year, $5,000, some were less, some were more. 
although that was a reasonably good amount of money to be making for six months, for many players who were college educated, who had aspirations to, to be executives or to have careers that uh, would be fitting for their college degrees, they were working some other job in the off season on the assumption that they were only going to be professional basketball players for a few years and they'd have a whole lifetime ahead of them where they would need to earn an income. Waterloo's first NBA game was actually against the New York Knicks in October of 1949. And it was a tremendous way to start Waterloo's time in this new league after being what they considered a a major league basketball city for one year. Now to begin the second season of major league professional basketball, the Hawks were hosting the New York Knicks. It was Waterloo in Northeast Iowa literally over a thousand miles away hosting a team that had come in on their own private rail car from New York and uh, that was the epitome it was the team from New York and that's all that mattered and so Waterloo on opening night in 1949-50 hosted the the Knicks and uh, hung with them but New York took that game by the final of 68 to 60 just a few days later The Hawks beat the Boston Celtics four days after hosting the New York Knicks and beat them pretty soundly, 80-66. to And uh, that was the first win for Waterloo against an opponent in the National Basketball Association. In a lot of ways, that's the highlight of the Hawks' story. But teams like the Knicks and the Philadelphia Warriors, Boston Celtics, weren't particularly excited about putting Waterloo Hawks on their marquee. And so they found some creative ways to get around hosting home games against Waterloo. They would play double headers where the, let's say the team in Philadelphia might play the team from Baltimore. And the undercard game, the early game was New York versus Waterloo, and that would be in Philadelphia. And then Waterloo would be in New York, for example, and might play Baltimore or Philadelphia while the Knicks played a more prestigious opponent, at least a more prestige in terms of the city that they came from. So the Hawks did play in Madison Square Garden just before Christmas in 1949, but they didn't play the Knicks. They played the Philadelphia Warriors instead, and the Knicks had a different opponent that night. But they they did end up seeing just about all of the major venues of the era that were hosting professional basketball and uh, just wasn't against the team that you might have expected on the opposite bench. In the 1948-49 season, the Hawks were competitive. They were very successful early on, and uh, you could say that they they ran out of gas. You could argue that they were either the sixth or the seventh best team in the nine-team National Basketball League. During that season and into the start of the 1949-1950 NBA season, uh, the Hawks were a slower, more methodical team. They weren't as athletic as some of the opponents that they faced, and that was probably their downfall. They also dealt with some injuries, particularly in the 1948-49 season that slowed them down when things appeared to otherwise be going along pretty well. And the Hawks finished near the bottom of their division, fifth out of six teams in 1949-50. 
In the spring of 1950, there was a sentiment among the large cities, among the owners, among the media, that a city like New York and a city like Waterloo or Sheboygan, Wisconsin, shouldn't be in the same league. They, they weren't on par as far as uh, some of the owners saw it and as far as many of the columnists for the major papers saw it. So the National Basketball Association worked through a couple of ideas that they thought might push some of the smaller city teams out of the NBA. They, uh, for example, had to put up a $50,000 performance bond where if the team couldn't operate, ran out of money, couldn't pay its players, couldn't make its road trips, and failed to be a functioning entity within the NBA, that $50,000 bond would be forfeited. It had to be backed by an insurance company or a bank. And well, the Hawks and the Sheboygan Redskins were able to manage that because they had tremendous community support in both cases. And so they went to the league meetings in April of 1950, and ultimately the rest of the league voted to exclude Waterloo, Sheboygan, and Denver from the scheduling process. That was really the end for Major League Professional Basketball in Waterloo. I'd like to read something from the local paper, the Waterloo Courier. This was an article from just a few years after Waterloo had had a team in the NBA. Recapping the era, the article says, The fortunes of pro basketball fluctuated, and even when crowds were good, there was one difficulty or another, sometimes a losing season, sometimes mounting expenses, and sometimes strife within a league itself. Waterloo pro basketball fans always have insisted that the city would be in the NBA today if the big city members had not forced out smaller cities. I think that captures the sentiment of Waterloo in the early 1950s and the disappointment that many people felt that they'd had something and it had been taken away from them. And in many ways, that's why the story of the Waterloo Hawks isn't really well known today, even in Waterloo itself, because at the time, the people who had made it happen, who had made basketball viable in Waterloo at the highest level of pro basketball at the time, I think really felt a disappointment. It wasn't something that they wanted to brag about. We look at it today as being a major accomplishment for a city of 70 or 80,000 people to have a team playing against opponents from New York and Philadelphia and Boston. And you've been listening to Tim Harwood of Waterloo, Iowa's News Talk, 1540 KXCLAM. Tim is the author of Ball Hawks, a sports history book about the Waterloo Hawks. And this is a story of a league we all now know and the maturation of professional sports and hearing about these two leagues finally in the end, the NBL and the BAA merging to form what we all now know as the NBA. And, of course, Waterloo, Sheboygan, and Denver, a very small town at the time, were all pushed out of the NBA. What a story about a time and place that players had part-time jobs, actually almost full-time jobs, two jobs, ball player half the year, 
an accountant or whatever the other half. My dad had played college basketball, was friends with Tommy Heinsohn, who played on the Boston Celtics for half the year and drove trucks. The other half would one day come to coach the Boston Celtics when the league professionalized and changed. And I sometimes wonder about Green Bay because this small city, well, the NFL kept them and they have a powerhouse of a team. And that last story, and we love telling stories about American history, including sports history. Uh, It's brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College who support so much of the storytelling we do here. And by the way, we love your stories, so send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear them. Up next, Kristen O'Donnell Tubbs tells us the story of a woman whose family lived in the New York City Public Library. Once upon a time, a girl was born inside a library. And not just any library, the New York Public Library. Yep, the big famous building on 5th and 42nd, the one with the lions out front. The date was May 8, 1917. Two French dignitaries happened to be visiting the library that week, Prime Minister René Viviani and Marshal Joseph Joffre. The girl's parents were stumped for a name for their daughter, and a guest at the party suggested combining these two dignitaries' names. And so the girl born inside the NYPL became Viviani Joffre Fiedler. Viviani was the first daughter and third child of John and Cornelia Fiedler. John Fiedler was hired as the building superintendent when the iconic library was under construction. He, Cornelia, and their two sons, John Jr. and Edward, moved into the library in July 1910, 10 months before the library opened to the public on May 23, 1911. They lived in an eight-room apartment on the mezzanine level of the library. This apartment is where Viviani was born, and she's thought to be the only child ever born inside the building. The footprint of the apartment is still there today. Viviani, Edward, and John Jr. had quite a childhood inside those marble walls. They later recounted stories of playing baseball inside the library using books as bases. The library often hosted dignitaries at lavish parties inside the stunning building. And when Viviani was six, she recited poetry to Queen Marie of Romania in the children's collection. Because they were not allowed to have pets, John Jr. once trapped pigeons on the roof until the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals caught wind of this and requested he free them. Viviani and her friends would slide down the banisters and play hide-and-seek among the library's priceless marble statues while her brothers played war in the basement. And once, a thief was caught trying to steal a rare $10,000 stamp collection from a library display. John Sr. was quite a character 
and to prevent his three children from getting into too much mischief in the late night library, he told his kids in his distinct Bowery dialect that the library was haunted by a man killed during construction. Viviani later told the New Yorker magazine that the library is, quote, like a big marble grave at night after the cleaners are gone. The idea that the NYPL is haunted is now quite entrenched in the building's history, and the opening scene of the original Ghostbusters movie pays homage to that belief. Peter? At 1.40 p.m. at the main branch of the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue, 10 people witnessed a free-floating, full-torso vaporous apparition. It blew books off shelves from 20 feet away and scared the socks off some poor librarian. I'm very excited. I'm very pleased. I want you to get right down there, check it out, and get back to me. No, okay? no, get right back no, to me. No, Peter, you're coming with us on this one. Spengler went down there. He took PKE valences, went right off the top of the scale, buried the needle. We're close on this one. I can feel it. John Jr. told the New York Times years later, quote, There was some basis for the legend. Ten men died in the nine or ten years it took to build the central library. The reading room ghost was one who had fallen from the scaffolding when they were putting in the reading room ceiling. At least, that's the way Father told it. The elder John Fiedler was also an inventor and worked with Thomas Edison. His workshop in the basement is still there today. He called it his private laboratory. He was known to have, quote, dabbled in plastics long before the word got into the dictionary. The Fiedler children had many friends in the area. Some of them lived in the Algonquin Hotel, some in Rogers Pete department store, this group of friends truly had a unique playground. Viviani lived in the library until she was 15 years old, leaving when she got married. John Jr. took over as the building superintendent from his father, retiring in June 1949. All told, the Fiedlers lived inside the New York Public Library for 38 years. You can read more about the Fiedler family and their adventures inside the New York Public Library in two books about their lives, The Story Collector and its sequel, The Story Seeker. And a special thanks to Kristen O'Donnell Tubbs for her storytelling. And what a gig. What a beautiful way to grow up. The reading room may be my favorite place in all of New York City. I can't tell you how many hours I spent there as a boy just love the place. When you're in New York City, visit the New York Public Library. It's an architectural feat. It's no normal library. And that reading room, well, you're going to read. You will feel compelled to. And you can never, ever hear a pin drop in that reading room. There's something sacred about walking into that room and peeling open a book. You'll be amongst great company from people all over the world using that room. And if you love the stories you hear or like the stories you hear and want to join in the work that we do or become a part of our team, well, go to Our American Stories and give what you can. And that means not just sending us stories, but if you can, uh, a small donation. Again, join the work that we do, become a part of the Our American Stories team 
Go to OurAmericanStories.com. Give what you can. Give a little. Give a lot. Do your part. And again, share those stories. Finally, we bring you the story of the woman the Gestapo once considered the most dangerous of all Allied spies, told by Judy Pearson. Virginia Hall was once asked why she never told her story. She replied that no one had ever asked her. In 2003, I began asking. My quest took me to her niece in Baltimore, newly declassified intelligence records in the National Archives, then to London, Paris, and across the French countryside. I conducted countless interviews in English and in French, and read dozens of personal accounts. What ultimately unfolded was the story of an incredible woman. She was intelligent, brave, and outspoken. She was loyal, daring, and stubborn. But as a young woman, all of Virginia Hall's energies were directed at becoming a foreign service officer. At high school graduation, while her chums were thinking of marriage and families, Virginia announced that the only way for a woman to get ahead in the world was with an education. After several undistinguished years at Radcliffe and Barnard, she went to the Sorbonne in Paris and then the Consulaire Academy in Vienna, from which she graduated in 1929. Back in the States, now fluent in French and German, she applied to take the Foreign Service exam. The exam consisted of three parts. The first was written, covering all manner of topics, including world history, geography, and sociology. The second tested the applicant's knowledge of a foreign language. Virginia opted for French. And the third part of the exam, far more subjective, gave the examiner the power to judge what kind of officer the applicant would make. Virginia failed the exam, took it again, and was failed again. It was 1930. Women had only had the right to vote for 10 years, and the number of female Foreign Service officers could be counted on one hand. Gender discrimination was hard at work. She told a family friend that if she couldn't get into the Foreign Service through the front door, she'd try going in through the back door and landed a job as clerk at the American Embassy in Poland. She once again applied for the exam, but before she completed it, she was transferred to the American consulate in Smyrna, now Izmir, Turkey. Here, her life changed forever. On a December Saturday afternoon hunting expedition with some friends in 1933, Virginia's gun accidentally discharged into her left foot. Despite doctors' best efforts, gangrene set in, and to save her life, they removed her leg from the knee down. What might have been considered by some as a life-ending event, Virginia saw as merely a delay in plans. When she was well enough to travel, she returned home to Baltimore to recuperate and be fitted with a seven-pound wooden prosthesis. And a year later, she was back at work, this time at the American consulate in Venice, from which she requested to take the foreign service exam yet again. But this time, rather than test questions, a letter arrived, informing her that, according to an obscure statute, amputees were not accepted in the Foreign Service. The letter concluded by politely asking Virginia not to apply again. 
she simply wouldn't fit in. As Hitler began blazing across Europe, a discouraged Virginia Hall left her consular job and went to France. Here, her leg was not an issue. She was gratefully accepted as a volunteer ambulance driver for the French army. Nor was her leg an issue several months later, when in London, she was approached by a special operations executive employee, the SOE. This undercover paramilitary organization had been created by Winston Churchill to, as he said, set Europe ablaze. The current war was unlike any other. The Allies needed extraordinary warfare in the form of espionage and sabotage. Escaping French military had told the British that there were many in France who would be willing to rise up against the Nazis, given enough organization and arms. Leaders who could be infiltrated into the country were needed, and Virginia fit the bill. The Brits didn't give a hoot about her gender. In fact, it was believed that women would make the best spies. This doesn't surprise those of us who are women, but it was a revelation to the men. Furthermore, men were being whisked to Germany as laborers. A man on the streets in France needed reasons for being there, but a woman didn't and could travel about more easily. Nor did the Brits care how many limbs Virginia had lost. Her disability was unknown to most. She walked only with a slight limp. At the SOE's training camps, Virginia learned things her Baltimore contemporaries would never have imagined. I had the good fortune to interview one of the instructors while I was in London. Leslie Fernandez taught SOE recruits, including Virginia, physical combat, in other words, how to kill. And Virginia wasn't shown any favoritism because of her missing leg. She wouldn't have accepted it anyway. The only training she didn't receive was in parachuting, the primary means by which agents were infiltrated. It was 1941, and America had not yet entered the war. Virginia would be free to enter France as a non-combatant, which she did using journalism as her cover. I spent hours digging through the British National Archives at Kew and the Imperial War Museum archives in London, both of which were rich in material. I heard the oral histories of those recruited agents who had daringly dropped into occupied France, where Virginia and others awaited them. When I arrived in France after spending several days digging through the archives in Paris, I rented a car and took off across the country to visit firsthand all of the cities Virginia had worked from. She was ultimately sent to Lyon, the center of resistance activities in unoccupied France. So I went to Lyon as well. There, under her journalism cover, while ostensibly collecting information for newspaper articles, Virginia was also collecting information about Nazi activities. Her flat, innocently appearing as that of a hardworking writer, was the clearinghouse for every British agent who was sent to central France in 1941. Through Virginia, they were able to connect with fellow agents and contact others to help them. They collected counterfeited money and wireless radios needed to perform their work. When they were captured and imprisoned, Virginia worked on their escapes. She organized her own group of resistance members in Lyon 
and had contacts in Marseille and at the Spanish border, two places from which people could disappear should the need arise. She and her group saved innumerable lives of both downed Allied pilots needing passage out of France and agents who were being hunted by the Gestapo. But it wasn't long before Virginia herself became hunted. Klaus Barbie, later known as the Butcher of Lyon, spread the word that a lady with a limp, an Englishman or a Canadian, was wanted in connection with espionage activities. His posters announced that Virginia was the most dangerous of all Allied spies and that everyone should help him find and destroy her. Virginia's exodus across the Pyrenees Mountains, the rugged chain that separates France from Spain, was in November 1942. The cold and rigorous march would have been exhausting for anyone, but dragging a seven-pound wooden leg through the snow made it all the more difficult for Virginia. She hadn't dared tell the guide about her leg. He was already grumbling because she was a woman. At one point, she was able to radio London to tell them she was on her way out of France. She mentioned that Cuthbert, her clever nickname for her leg, had become quite tiresome. The recipient of the message, ignorant of the leg's name, wired back that if Cuthbert had become tiresome, she should have him eliminated. At the end of the grueling 30-mile journey, Virginia was arrested in Spain for not having papers. She was imprisoned for six weeks, released only after her former cellmate, a Barcelona prostitute, was able to get word to the British consulate that she was being held. By the time Virginia had returned to England in early 1943, a new intelligence organization had been born. Its name was the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. It was patterned after the SOE, with one exception. It was purebred American, led by a hero from World War I named General Wild Bill Donovan. Virginia was desperate to get back into the fight, and transferring to the OSS made sense since she was an American. But there was a concern. She was now a hunted woman whose sketched picture had been spread throughout France. A return could only be facilitated if she were disguised. That of an old peasant woman fit the bill. On her second trip to occupied France, Virginia's intelligence and ingenuity served her and saved her many times. This time, she acted as her own radio operator, setting up numerous resistance cells. Three months after returning to France, the greatest armada the world had ever seen crossed the channel for the D-Day landings. When the signal was given, her resistance cell went into action, cutting off Nazi supply lines and disrupting their communications, all in a successful effort to aid the Allied invasion of Europe. By the fall of 1944, all of France was liberated. During Virginia's second stint in the country, she had had the pleasure of leading 1,500 resistance volunteers who killed 150 Nazis and captured 500 more. Her team had sabotaged numerous transportation and communication links. Virginia's leadership and sang-froid was not only admired, it became legendary. They called her La Madone, the Madonna.
Virginia was awarded the Member of the British Empire, the French Croix de Guerre avec Palme, and the American Distinguished Service Cross, the only woman in World War II to receive that American distinction. But Virginia wasn't interested in accolades. She wanted to continue her work in espionage. Although the OSS had been dissolved, Virginia was one of the first women on board the new intelligence agency, known as the Central Intelligence Group. It became the Central Intelligence Agency in December 1947. But the new world of intelligence was very different from the one Virginia had previously been a part of. Communism was the enemy now, and as one observer put it, Joseph Stalin made Hitler look like a Boy Scout. Virginia wanted desperately to become an operative again, willing to undergo whatever training was necessary. But at the advanced age of 41, she was looked upon as old school. Her skills were outdated, and her aggressiveness was offensive to the younger men who were her superiors. Her experience was dismissed as not pertinent. After all she'd been through and all the sacrifices she gladly made, once again, Virginia Hall didn't fit in. Virginia had married Paul Goyot in 1950, a French-American she had met toward the end of the war. She accepted mandatory retirement from the CIA in 1966, and she and Paul moved to a farm in Barnstown, Maryland. They raised poodles, gardened, and grew old together. Virginia died in 1982, and Goyo followed five years later. She was never bitter about the fact that her career hadn't begun or ended as she would have liked. Rather, Virginia chose to remember the magnificent days in the middle, the days when her clever mind and brave heart helped defeat fascists bent on world domination. And a special thanks to Judy Pearson. And by the way, her book about Virginia Hall was called Wolves at the Door, The True Story of America's Greatest Female Spy. And I had never heard that story, and I'm a big World War II buff, and it doesn't get better than a story like that. I mean, the woman accidentally shoots her foot off, and for most people, that's it. She gets turned down once, twice, but is determined to be a member of the Foreign Service, eases her way into France when most people will be running from France as the Nazis come and occupy the country. And ultimately, Klaus Barbie, the butcher, has her as the most wanted person in the Nazi regime when it comes to spies. And my goodness, it doesn't get better as a spy to be that kind of most wanted person. Certainly, what an impact she had, her life, what an example. And by the way, to be the only woman to win the American Distinguished Service Cross. I don't know why more of us don't know this story. And my goodness, what Judy Pearson did here, the author, I mean, she literally walked in Virginia Hall's shoes, traveled all over Europe just to, just to honor her story. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast. Thank you.